If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. A colonial bogeyman, a dastardly bandit responsible for incredibly heinous crimes, or a hard-drinking prizefighter in search of his freedom. The Australian bushranger, known as Black Douglas, has long been plagued by a shadowy myth. While alive, his life of crime across 19th century Australia made him a target of lynch mobs and the popular press. But how many of the dark deeds attributed to him did he actually commit? And what drove him into the Australian bush in the first place? Meg Foster, author of a new book, Boundary Crossers, unravels just that. And Emily Brefitt spoke to her to find out more. Hi, Meg. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. So who was Black Douglas? And also, what was his real name? So Black Douglas is renowned for his time on the Victorian goldfields of the 1850s. And he's almost this kind of colonial boogeyman. He's renowned as a bush ranger. He's renowned as a murderer. He's meant to have committed a slew of serious crimes across various goldfields and operated with a big gang of largely white people, actually. Um, and this is the Black Douglas legend, but the person who has this name is actually a man called William Douglas, who is originally from the States. He's an African-American man. And yeah, in this talk, I think we'll get a bit more into his origins and his very incredible life trajectory. Black Douglas, as known, was known as this infamous bushranger. But what actually was 
bushranging. Could you just give us a brief description of it? Yeah, I'm actually asked this a lot, especially in the UK. People seem to be a bit confused. I've been asked before whether they're park rangers. They're not. <laughs> um, so bushrangers are criminals. Um, the closest, I think kind of cultural touch point in the UK would be the British highwaymen as kind of com- a comparison. Americans might be familiar with cowboys. So they're, they're bandits. They they run away from settlement. They live in the Australian bush through the proceeds of crime that involves robbery with violence or with at least the threat of violence. But the thing with the Australian context is these people aren't just criminals to Australians like me. We're brought up, these are national heroes. So they're a part of our kind of national legend. Um, We kind of celebrate them for being underdogs, for fighting unjust authority. There's almost like a Robin Hood element to their story. Um, And sometimes there's even like a chivalric element. So kind of harking back to that gallant nightly highway robber type persona that happens a bit later. So that's something that I think listeners should really be aware of at the beginning. So there are these historical criminals in Australia called bushrangers, but most Australians listening to the podcast would be aware of them as these big national legends with these other connotations. With all this mythologising, where does Black Douglas actually fit? That's a really excellent question. Um, He's really infamous in his own times. So Douglas enters the archive most powerfully in the 1850s on the gold rush of Victoria. So he is renowned as this dastardly figure. So he's interesting in the sense that he's not celebrated in his own time. He's infamous, but as a criminal, as someone who other settlers, other colonists, other miners should be really afraid of. He is accused of murder. He's accused of highway robbery. He's accused of a slew of other serious offences. And He's interesting in terms of the fact that, yes, he wasn't celebrated, but he's also interesting in terms of whether these accusations, whether this mythology actually was what he he did. And the short answer is it's not. <laughs> and so peeling back those layers of myth to see, like, what's at the heart of that is really what I'm interested in. Peeling back these layers then, who actually was William Douglas? Yeah, so William Douglas was born in 1817 in Philadelphia in the United States, which in itself is pretty remarkable. So Goldfield's 1850s, no one really cares about his origins. No one asks these types of questions. Who was he? Where did he come from? What was his backstory? But piecing together convict records and working backwards, I was actually able to find that, yes, William Douglas is African-American. It's a really interesting world that he comes into. He's one of the first African-Americans to be born legally free from slavery and enforced labour after this very pioneering act is passed in Pennsylvania, the state that he's born into. And the American context is really interesting because he has all these opportunities that free black people at the time are only just starting to really experience. So Philadelphia is at the kind of forefront of the abolition movement, There are schools with um, rhetorical education for free black people. It's a site and a hub for runaway slaves from the American South as well. But at the time Douglas was there, there's also this transition period where this kind of great beacon of the abolition movement is actually going away from those progressive origins. There's more racial hatred as Douglas is getting older. And then at some point before he's 18 years old, he actually makes it to the UK, to England. Um, He's in Rye in Sussex. And so part of my kind of 
detective work as an historian is trying to figure out how did he get from America to the UK? That's a pretty big leap. And because of the nature of, you know, the types of documents that are kept, they privilege, you know, very elite, well-to-do white people. We have way more documentation about their lives. All I had were these two points of connection. So we've got Rye, UK. The most likely way that Douglas came to the UK was on a ship. Um, So he very likely worked for his passage on board a ship. We're not sure exactly how long he was actually at this seafaring life. Um, But we know later in his life he has an an anchor tattoo on his hand, which implies that he may have actually felt an affinity with this type of life and career. But I should also kind of preface that convicts also saw anchor tattoos as, as symbols of hope. So there's another kind of alternative reading there. So Douglas likely comes to the UK working for his passage on a trading vessel. He's in Rye in 1835 and he's nabbed by the police. Uh, He's caught red-handed in the middle of a theft. This is the real turning point of his life. Previously, he seems to have, you know, voluntarily gone to sea. And after this point, he's actually convicted and transported to Australia as a convict. And so that's how he ends up entering the Australian colonies. So he enters New South Wales in 1835. Unfortunately for Douglas, this is another time of transition and not in his favour. So previously, New South Wales had been almost a place of opportunity for convicts, which is definitely not what, you know, the authorities intended. They wanted it to be a deterrent of crime. But when you think about it, you know, convicts are going to the complete other side of the world. They're trying to set up a, a new settlement. They're not connected to other, you know, places with vestiges of civilization, and I say that in, you know, air parentheses, this, they're not close to any other outpost that is British. They need to establish the settlement from the ground up. And so they're really trying to encourage convicts basically to, to work as settlers. They're giving them parcels of land. They're giving them animals in the hope that they actually will develop the colony and it will be self-sustaining. Unfortunately for Douglas, by the time he comes to New South Wales in 1835, that impetus to really put down roots in the colony has kind of shifted and the desire to actually make the Australian colonies a deterrent of crime has really grown. So by the time he gets to New South Wales, he's actually sent to a far-flung reach of the colony, which is once again not very appealing. So he's he's made to work for a master that he's assigned to on the kind of south coast of New South Wales. But by 1841, um, it's very clear he's not enjoying things. And we know that from a few different pieces of evidence. Firstly, we know that he's being forced into hard labour, we know that he's actually receiving lashes as well, hundreds of lashes by this point for things like refusing to work, obscene language, um, drunkenness is another big one for him. And by 1841, he tries to leave the convict system. How does he do it? Well, he runs away to be a bushranger. This is, I mean, spoiler alert, but the only time in his life where he is ever convicted for bushranging crime is in New South Wales in 1841, and it's really anticlimactic. So putting aside the legend, it's pretty embarrassing, to be honest. He runs away with another convict. Um, They stop someone on the road, pull him, you know, over, get him to unload his goods, which include, you know, clothes, food, weapons. Um, And then they take those things they've stolen back to their convict quarters and they're caught. 
So Douglas did try to cover his tracks to a certain extent. So a lot of bushrangers did either blacken their faces or wear masks to try to actually, you know, remain a little bit anonymous. But Douglas was identified as a person of colour by the colour of his hands. So he was very quickly spotted and his accomplice was identified basically immediately. Um, And so after this point, Douglas is before the courts again, he is convicted and he's transported to Van Diemen's Land, what we would now call Tasmania. So Tasmania was a place of secondary punishment and, you know, if New South Wales was trying to be the poster child for do not commit crime, you don't want to go here, then Van Diemen's Land was that, like, to the max. There's, like, a next level um, nature of that. that It's meant to be a place you don't want to go because you're put to hard labour. And a lot of shifting ideas about what punishment looks like and what the kind of purpose of punishment should be in Britain and its empire at this time are really kind of manifesting themselves in Van Diemen's land. So there are kind of new ideas that punishment shouldn't necessarily be um, something solely inflicted on the body. There should try to be a kind of outcome of reformation. You should try to improve criminals so that they're no longer committing crime. So the idea is that you have this system called probation. So you enter the system at the kind of peak level of severity. So you're doing incredibly arduous work. You don't have a lot of control over your life at all. But the idea is that you you work to actually move down that scale. So increasingly you have more freedoms, increasingly you have less arduous work. You're eventually able to be hired out to local settlers and you're able to keep some of that money yourself as well. So Douglas enters the system at that kind of, we want you to feel this, we want this to be a punishment, and he doesn't like it. We have more evidence. He is forced to work with hard labour with and without chains. So, I mean, hard labour in itself is pretty intense, but imagine actually being shackled to either your fellow prisoners or shackled around your legs, for example. And he's also, I mean trying out this new form of punishment, solitary confinement, which is quite novel at the time, but the idea is that you isolate these criminals from their fellows so they're not, you know, egging each other on. They've got some isolation and time to reflect. They're meant to actually step back and be like, well, you know, I can't pursue this career of crime anymore. It's not working for me. I will open my heart to God and moral reform. That's the idea. doesn't seem to work for Douglas. He keeps committing crimes. Um... But eventually he does work off his sentence and he's one of many convicts from Tasmania who go straight from Van Diemen's Land to the Victorian Gold Rush and that's where the legend really takes off. Um, But this prehistory I've just described has never been pieced together until now because colonists just weren't interested. What sources are we actually using here? What are you looking at to be able to find all this out? Convict sources are pretty useful. I mean, I read a quote in a book the other day that said they contain the most detailed information about any group of working class people that we we have. And it's important to note that the, the reasons we have this material isn't benign. These convicts are so well documented because this material is meant to control them. 
So one way to think of some of the things I'm looking at, so like a convict indent, which records incredible details for me, like Douglas's height, the colour of his hair, the colour of his eyes, descriptions of his tattoos, where he was at certain times in his life. Incredibly rich for an historian, but um, they really should be thought of as kind of written mugshots. So before we had photography to take physical pictures of criminals, the idea was that you would record all these really intimate details. There was a particular emphasis on distinguishing marks. So what kind of sets this person apart from other people? So that if they ran away and were caught, you could compare them to these records and try to identify who they were, what their sentence was, how much they had left. The traces that are left really allow me as an historian to use them for ends they were never envisaged for. I can reposition them. I can use those details of where Douglas was at certain times of his life to try to say, you know, what world was he a part of? What opportunities did he have? What obstacles stood in his way as a person of colour at this time, at this place, at this age, etc. Um, so convict records are incredibly important. Newspaper articles as well. Um, so there's an amazing database called Trove, which any Australian listeners I think will probably be aware of. It is a digitised repository that's keyword searchable of most colonial newspapers in Australia. And I guess the third group of sources, which kind of aligns with convict sources but not quite, is other crime sources. So jail logbooks, court depositions, material like that, which once again we need to be aware of their their origins as, as forms to kind of document police and control people like Douglas, but they provide really unique opportunities for historians like me to engage with his story and kind of use those bits and of traces of his life to my own ends and try to expand them out so that I can try to see Douglas as close as possible to how he may have seen himself. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How far do you think maybe then that these attitudes presented in these sources and ones that we know about influenced his decisions in life up to this point so far? That's a really good question and it's quite difficult to be able to pinpoint from the material. So I can't say categorically, but I can say, you know, of course I think that the the kind of increasing racial intolerance in Philadelphia may have prompted him to move. Like that that's a part of his story and he very likely experienced some form of racial discrimination or and may have predicted its increase. When we look about, you know, Douglas on a ship and his maritime kind of experience, that's also interesting because maritime world kind of offered different opportunities for him. So there weren't the same kind of rigid racial categories because when you think about it, you're on a ship, this kind of floating safe space in the middle of a quite dangerous ocean where you could be presented with storms or pirates or whatever else. You really need all hands on deck. You need people working together. And so those racial distinctions that may have been quite rigid on land were a bit more malleable, a bit more porous on a ship, but that didn't mean they disappeared entirely. So moving forward onto Douglas in in the UK and his kind of place in Rye as a labourer, he would have had a bit more freedom. Like the the ship's hierarchy also relied on kind of corporal punishment, physical punishment for misdemeanours. And the idea is that there isn't really a, what we would call a due process at law. It's kind of like, it's very hierarchical and it's very dependent on the whims of your superiors. So Douglas would have had more independence on land. It's interesting to me as well that both in Rye and in Australia when Douglas commits his one very unspectacular stint at bushranging, that he has white accomplices. So he's he's not acting on his own. He's got, you know, these criminal accomplices who are white. So the idea that we have about race being the sole defining feature of his experience, it's not necessarily he's, he's able to forge different relationships with people. He's not segregated in the way that we might expect. Um, and there are other things that are more important, other connections that are pull more strongly than our ideas of kind of racial divisions. Um, but in terms of how other people's expectations dictated his actions, it's, it's interesting because to a certain extent, I think there's kind of like a push-pull factor. Like, of course, you would go searching for somewhere with more opportunity, more space, more more ability to be free and be yourself. But Douglas also constantly pushes back against any type of attempt to curtail his liberty. When we look at his record in Australia, what I see is someone who refuses to abide by the confines that he's found himself in and someone who's repeatedly trying to carve a space for himself apart from that. So to be honest, even though I don't have a lot of material that actually is in Douglas's own words 
by reading his actions and reading his actions against that context, I think we can really gauge something about his character and who he was as a person. I suppose there's one thing that we should probably really talk about is how did he come to earn his moniker Black Douglas? Where did that come from? It would seem if you encounter Douglas's story from the Victorian gold rush angle, that this is kind of like almost like a boogeyman term that he's been given by white colonists to kind of emphasize his kind of his infamy and the kind of almost nightmarish way that he kind of lurks in the kind of psyche of miners on the diggings. But once again, if we if we trace it backwards and we look at William Douglas and we look at his life and trajectory, the first time we see Douglas associated with the moniker Black Douglas is actually in Tasmania. And it's it's in the prize fighting ring. So Douglas was actually a prize fighter as well. So think like bare knuckle boxing type activities. And this was something that was a great pastime, a leisure activity. A lot of people love to come and spectate, but it was actually illegal in Van Diemen's land at the time that Douglas was there. He's one of a handful of prize fighters who become incredibly notorious, but also famous for these these types of fights. And we have these newspaper articles about how, you know, one particular fight has to be moved at the last minute because the police are onto them. There are people who are particularly drawn to this fight because of Douglas's reputation and that of his opponent, a guy called Bob Fee, originally from Sheffield. So it's interesting because this prize fighting context opens a complete other window as to really how much agency, how much choice Douglas has in the course of his his life. And it seems quite likely that this may be a name that Douglas chose for himself um, because among, among convicts and among the kind of the circles that Douglas is moving in, black isn't necessarily a kind of a pejorative term. It's a statement of pigmentation. It's, it's a fact of his colour. And he seems to have owned it and embraced it and actually used that. And it's only later that it has these kind of really dark undertones in Victoria. So I'd like to return to talking a bit about his story. He's been in Van Diemen's Land. Where's he going next? You start to say this is where the legend really takes off. So Douglas went to Victoria from Van Diemen's Land as a steerage passenger on board a ship. And he almost immediately starts to make a name for himself there. So gold is only really publicly discovered in Victoria in 1851. And I say publicly because there were other instances where gold had been found, but there was almost an an official attempt at a cover-up because they were concerned that it would lead to such unrest to have this kind of rush of people into an area that had such little established government and policing. 1852, there are reports of Douglas carrying out these nefarious, dastardly crimes. At one point, an officer in Melbourne talks about hearing reports of Douglas carrying on his back someone who was likely one of his victims, but such was his kind of reputation that no one dared to ascertain the fact. So already my kind of critical historian's brain is like, okay, so you've seen Douglas carrying someone, no one's ascertained this person is dead. (laughs) No one's checked out to see if anyone's missing. No one's actually looked into it. It's just a black man who could very well have been, you know, carrying a drunk mate home, to be honest. But already there's this sense that, oh my God, he's, he's everywhere. And he's got his hand in so many dastardly, I mean, I keep saying dastardly, but that's the language that's used at the time. So I'm using it again. So many kind of heinous crimes. So already he's 
basically entering Victoria and almost immediately there's this kind of incredibly heinous legend that starts to develop around him. Um, And this really reaches its peak in 1855 and this is where kind of Douglas enters the archive in one of the strongest senses because there's a near lynching. So that's something that listeners might not associate with Australia and, I mean, in fact, a lot of historians of the Australian gold rush like to remark upon how orderly and how there is a kind of sense of British inheritance and respect for authorities in Australia compared to somewhere like the kind of lawlessness of the Californian gold rush, which, of course, immediately precedes the Australian gold rushes. But there's this instance of near lynching because there's not only rumours that Douglas has committed these kind of pretty atrocious crimes, is rumours that he's stealing things from enterprising miners, but there's a very particular rumour going around the diggings that he murdered a white woman at a place called Avoca. And this murder is really pivotal in the development of his later legend. You have, you know, old pioneers writing their memoirs in the 1880s and 1890s, harking back, referring to this very specific murder as being the thing that led to Douglas's capture. So there are rumours that he's robbing people. There are rumours that he's stealing from them. There are rumours that he's committed this murder of a white woman at Avoca. And so the miners at this goldfield have had enough. They actually find Douglas and his men, they surround him, they capture him, and there's there's violence as well. There are reports that people are fighting with picks and shovels, kind of whatever they had nearby to try to bring this dastardly crew to justice. But once they're caught, there's motions, okay, well, we've got them now, let's just lynch them. I mean, this makes a bit more sense when we think about how precarious and how dispersed law and order from the authorities actually was on the diggings. So a nearby goldfield about the same time I was looking at had about 5,000 inhabitants and one police officer was put in charge of all those people. And because these goldfields are moving so rapidly, you could find that you've allocated police to a certain area that then is just completely depopulated pretty soon afterwards because people have moved on to the next rush. They're following rumours of, you know, the new El Dorado somewhere else. So this is the background. And so we can see, okay, these miners clearly feel like they need to take the law into their own hands. But luckily there is an officer there and he manages to talk these miners down and say, you know, I understand your grievances, but I think we should take Douglas and his gang to the police in Miraburra, a nearby, more established town instead, so they can actually face justice. And that's that's what happens. They're, they're bound and they're carted to the police in Miraburra, which is six kilometres away. Um, and then you would think there would be an epic trial, right? All of these stories, all of these rumours, this man who's meant to have committed all of these crimes... And the newspapers are really bummed because Douglas is only in prison for two years and his the only thing he's convicted of is unlawfully entering the tent of two Maori. So he's not convicted for robbery or for, you know, assault or definitely not for murder. It's vagrancy, like having no fixed place of residence or means to support your 
self. Um, and yeah, unlawfully entering the tent of two Mary, very unspectacular. And the papers, um, one of them says, you know, it's hard to contain our disbelief that this is all that, you know, this amounted to. And, you know, within less than two years, Douglas is out for good behavior and he's spotted amongst rowdy grog tents on the Goulburn diggings. And then he's before the courts again for drunken disorderly conduct. Um, but that really challenged me when I was coming across this material to be like, okay, well, what is this guy's criminal record? And yeah, it's mainly alcohol-related offences, which is in itself incredibly interesting because the role that alcohol played on the diggings is a story in and of itself. So alcohol wasn't allowed on the actual goldfields themselves. The goldfields towns that were slightly away from where miners were actually, you know, digging into the earth, Yes, but not the diggings themselves because the government was scared that, you know, large groups of people who were kind of untethered from the pressures and the confines of polite society would actually, you know, be either morally degraded or descend into crime and lawlessness if they had access to alcohol. And, of course, all this did, it didn't get rid of alcohol, it drove it underground, so you had these sly grog tents or coffee shops that did not serve coffee, they served alcohol. But you also had these nefarious trades where you had, you know, liquor is the drink of the diggings, it's a lot easier to move around than beer, um, so, you know, these sly grog traders could be as mobile as the diggers themselves. Also incredibly high alcohol content, so you had people actually getting more drunk than maybe they would otherwise if it had been regulated. But... It's interesting because this is where all classes of society on the goldfields seem to be uniting around this idea of, you know, the government is unfairly interfering in our lives if they're curtailing our access to alcohol. So we have to remember that alcohol was really embedded in the social fabric of 19th century life. It was a way to seal a bargain. It was a way to drown out sorrow. It was a way to celebrate. It was a way to you know, send off a loved one's memory. Babies had alcohol mixed in with some of their first meals. So the social consensus seems to be that alcohol is something that is normal. It's something that's just a part of social life. And it's something that should not be policed or controlled. And so in this way, Douglas is actually really representative of the Goldfields population as a whole. And his, the things that he is most often criminalised for, the things he's most often facing the court for, are things that majority of Goldfields residents didn't consider crimes at all. So what's actually so significant about the types of crimes attributed to him, this murder in particular? Yeah, the murder is incredibly important. And I think the first step is kind of refuting once and for all that it actually is something Douglas committed. So I was interested to not just take rumours at their word and to go back through the criminal archive and see, okay, was there a murder at a voker of a woman? How or what evidence is there that Douglas was involved? So I went back through the records and there were two murders of women around this time that Douglas is meant to have committed this crime. One of them was so far away from the Avoca district, it, it can't be the one attributed to him. The second one 
is very interesting. So we have a group of five mounted men who were apparently committing a series of crimes in the vicinity of Avoca and amongst one of them. The crimes is they shot and killed a woman called Margaret Wade um, and she died of her wounds um, the, actually the day after she was shot. Okay, it seems to match the crime ascribed to Douglas, um, but... <laughs> We have at the time, both in government reports, in police reports, um, very intimately detailed descriptions of all of the assailants. So we've got things like, you know, one man was riding, you know, a tan horse with a brown muzzle and, you know, was wearing a Jim Crow hat and all these very particular details, but none of the assailants are described as black. So... This seems a really big oversight unless there was no black man who took part in these crimes. And it's interesting because newspapers who had previously reported the actual instance of this murder then later released other reports attributing Douglas with that crime, despite the fact that they, they knew he didn't commit it because they had literally circulated very detailed descriptions of the people who did. So Douglas didn't commit this murder. Um, and so my next question is, of course, well, why did this story gain such traction? How did it go on to haunt him? Like long after he was, was dead as one of the crimes that defined his kind of criminal career, um, and the answer I come up with is it's because this story felt true to miners and it's because this story served a social purpose. So in terms of feeling true, it's important for us to look at what it was actually like for a lot of these miners on the diggings. A lot of them felt like their world had been turned upside down. You had poor people who could suddenly become rich. You had women who were on the diggings, not just, you know, maintaining hearth and home as some did, but you also had women, you know, in the trenches digging for gold alongside their partners. You had women in, you know, illicit trades, sly grog selling. You had women who were actually competing with white men for a space and opportunity on the gold fields. And you also have people of different ethnicities as well. You have Aboriginal people who are also digging for gold. You have Maori who have come over from Aotearoa, New Zealand. You have such a diverse group of people all together and all seemingly with equal opportunity. This petrifies the majority of miners who are still white men because their ideas about their place in the world, about, you know, racial hierarchy, putting themselves at the top of the racial ladder and people of colour down the bottom, that's really challenged by the gold rush. And also same thing in terms of ideas about gender and gendered hierarchy. Women are meant to be the weaker sex at this time. They're meant to be vulnerable. They're meant to be in need of male protection. And so while this narrative of Douglas killing a white woman at Avoca is still a threat, because you have, you know, white men have not been able to protect one of their women, and I've got, you know, inverted commas over their women, it also helps to restore their ideas about how the world should work. You've got a woman who 
is vulnerable, who dies, who's not competing with these white men for the kind of riches of the gold rush. And you have a very clear villain, a black man who is easily identifiable and who distracts from the fact that most criminals on the gold fields are white. (laughs) And so it also lends this kind of moral dimension as well. So instead of you know, the diggers who rose up to capture Douglas being seen as vigilantes or a threat to law and order, they can be recast as righteous avengers. They can be recast as people who uh, have this kind of moral impetus to act and to right the order and to protect and avenge one of um, their own. And I think that that is why this narrative catches on because it felt true and it showed miners the world as they wanted it to be these white male miners, the world as they wanted it to be rather than how it actually was. So I think that it was comforting to them in some way to see the world as they thought that it should operate. Some of our listeners might recognise the name Ned Kelly amongst bushranging mythology. Why was there such a difference in how Black Douglas was presented? Yeah, so that that's a really good question. And I mean, the book that my my work on Douglas is based on is basically about these types of issues. So why is it that there are people of colour who are, you know, either committing the same bushranging crimes or accused of them in the case of Douglas, and they've never made it into that kind of pantheon of national legends. They've never had the kind of the purchase and the power of a name like Ned Kelly or a symbol like Ned Kelly. Um, I think there are a few things going on and I think for starters, Ned Kelly was very self-conscious about his his styling. So he left letters for the police. He specifically wrote about his grievances. He positioned himself as kind of a champion of the kind of the oppressed and the common people. And it was an interesting and useful um, kind of mould to be picked up by the new Australian nation after Federation in 1901. So one thing that we need to be clear about is that bushranging as a practice as a crime was 19th century. Bushranging as a national legend and a mythology in the way that we think of it today, that's very much a product of the 20th century. And when you think about it, you have you know, the Australian colonies have federated. We have a degree of independence from Britain that we haven't had before. We're looking for new symbols that kind of define us, that show us as unique, but also position us as part of this broader white male Anglo world. And the figure of the bushranger, the white male bushranger, fits in there really, really well because we have someone who's able to last in the bush. They're able to use the bush to their own ends. So not only showing this kind of rough and ready frontier masculinity, but also naturalizing a white colonial settler presence as well. And of course, the the narrative about bushrangers being underdogs and about them being kind of champions of the oppressed in some type of way, that also adds this kind of moral dimension to, yeah, our country, we identify with, you know, what is right and we will fight for it. But it also distracts from the fact that, you know, white colonial settlers like Ned Kelly, even if they are oppressed in terms of class, and of course the Irish were racialized to a certain extent as well, these settlers are still on stolen Aboriginal land. Convicts were forced to come to Australia, but they were also part of the dispossession of Aboriginal people. 
So this narrative about bushrangers and the kind of the moral dimension of the legend really helps in terms of justifying the existence of a white male colonial Australia. And people like Douglas, they do the opposite. (laughs) So they actually are a reminder that like diversity and, you know, racial and ethnic difference is also a part of Australian history. And they actually disrupt a lot of the certainties and a lot of the triumphant nature of the bushranging narrative that we have today by virtue of their experiences and how kind of how murky they are. People like Douglas don't fit into nice little categories of, you know, is is this person a hero or a villain? Are they famous or infamous? I have been asked this in interviews before. And I just, people like him defy those binary categories. They burst out of these boxes we want to contain them in. And that isn't useful when it comes to a national legend that's meant to be, you know, simple, easy to understand, emotionally resonate. And so that's one of the reasons why people like Douglas were never, even in their own times, sources of, you know, this legendary status. What do you think Black Douglas's story actually brings to the perception of these bushranging, mythological, Robin Hood-esque characters? And from that, how do you think we should really be thinking about bushrangers today? Yeah, I think Douglas... And, you know, other bushrangers like him really challenge us to rethink what we think we know about bushranging. And I think that's that's the, the danger of national symbols that feel comfortable. We feel we know these people and we're not encouraged to push deeper or look for people like Douglas who have been deliberately excluded from these types of legends. But I would also say that bushranging should be our entry point and not where we stop when we come to look at these figures So I'm not proposing that, you know, we should see Douglas as a black Ned Kelly, for example. I think that our interest in bushranging can be what kind of leads us to these stories, but we need to actually shift our understanding to try to see the world through people like Douglas's eyes to actually see how he defined his own experience. And it wasn't in relation to bushranging. I mean, when we look at what he he did and how he lived his life, bushranging is one very small part of his story. And actually we have this pretty brilliant quote, one of the few things that I have in his own words, his before the court in 1850s Victoria, and he's asked, you know, do you have any anything you would like to say as to why you shouldn't be sentenced according to the law? And he's kind of like, well, yeah, I've got a bad name without cause. The police keep pouncing on me. I haven't done anything. And the the magistrate is kind of like, you know, well, give a dog an ill name and hang him. Basically, you've lost your reputation. There's no hope for you. Like, we can't do anything about that now. And so I think we need to look out for stories like his and, you know, look out for his own words and try to reposition the bushranging story, not just on our terms, but to see it through the eyes of the people who experienced it and the people who were excluded from our national tradition. So as a final question to you, I want to just return to William Douglas himself from this point of being this infamous bushranger. It's the term we've used throughout this. How did the man himself come to live the rest of his life? Yeah, it's actually, it's, 
an interesting story. So after the Goldfields experience, Douglas stayed in Victoria where he seems to have kind of moved in and out of benevolent institutions and pubs. <laughs> um, and at the end of his life, which was quite late, so he was he passed away in the 1890s, but one thing that's quite remarkable and that really seems to capture for me the kind of the person who was Black Douglas is the way that he lived the end of his life actually as this kind of um, amateur phrenologist. And so to kind of let listeners know what phrenology is, it's it's a kind of pseudoscience that's very popular in the 19th century where the idea was that you could feel people's skulls and through feeling their skulls you could figure out, you know, their their mental quality, their their ability, their worth, their intellectual capacity through feeling their skulls. And here you have Douglas at the end of his life, a black man in a pub who's doing these these readings of these white people's skulls in exchange for a pint. And that for me is just such a beautiful encapsulation of someone who is kind of inverting and challenging these racial ideas that we have and is kind of carving a space for himself in a world that wasn't built for people like him. And that's, yeah, how I'd like to remember him. That was Meg Foster. Her book, Boundary Crosses, The Hidden History of Australia's Other Bushrangers, is out now. And you can find a feature that Meg wrote on William Douglas in the April 2023 issue of BBC History magazine. And if you're interested in the wider history of bushrangers in 19th century Australia, Meg previously joined us on the podcast to discuss just that. Just search for Australian bushrangers wherever you get your podcasts to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.